Last week, Pastor John kicked off our series called The Echoes of Jesus. And as many of you know, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament in the Bible. And it's easy to see them as two separate stories, one about God and Israel and the other about Jesus. But it's really one story. As Pastor John said last week, the Bible is one big testament that testifies about Jesus. The whole Bible is the story of Jesus. God has always had one plan. And we see that plan unfolding throughout both testaments. And in this series, we want to recognize the good news in the Old Testament. We want to find Jesus in the Old Testament because all throughout the Old Testament, there are these echoes of Jesus. As it says in Luke 24, verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so for this morning, I just want to set up the scripture passage for this morning before we um, get to it. Uh, Last week, Pastor John visited the story of God's covenant with Abram. Abram, who becomes Abraham, the ancestor of the Jewish people. And his passage from last week was from Genesis 15 one of the earliest stories in the whole Bible. And this week's story even is earlier than that. It happens right before this covenant story that John talked about last week. It's um, in Genesis chapter 14. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and uh, open it and turn it to Genesis 14. We're going to read that passage in a moment. But Abram didn't have any children at this point in his story. His wife Sarai was barren, but he did have two brothers, One was um, named Nahor, the other was Haran, and Haran had a son named Lot. And when Abram left his home, he took his nephew Lot with him. And they go to the land of Canaan. Canaan, much later in the Bible, becomes the land of Israel. And while they're in Canaan, both Lot and Abram become very wealthy. And in that time, Wealth wasn't measured in stocks and bonds and bank accounts, but rather wealth was in your sheep and your cattle. And Lot and Abraham, or Abram, have so many sheep and cattle that the land that they were living in couldn't support them both, so they had to separate. And Lot, his nephew, resettles near a city called Sodom. And after Lot moves to Sodom, Sodom is attacked and conquered by some kings of other cities. And they take all of Sodom's food and goods. And Lot is living in Sodom, and he's a wealthy man. And so they take Lot captive and all of his possessions as well. And this is the part where our passage picks up the story. Uh, Gina Anderson's going to read scripture for us. As she makes her way to the podium, I'm going to ask you to please stand and face the center of the room. And we read from the center of the room to remind us where Scripture is to be in our lives, both as individuals and as a community of faith, it is to be central. And so, uh, Gina, whenever you are ready, please read uh, Genesis 14, verses 13 to 20. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Ishkol and Enir, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 
During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Ketelamar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Gina, thank you very much. You may be seated. Now this, in essence, is a rescue story. Lot, Abram's nephew, is taken captive. And Lot is the closest relative Abram has in the land of Canaan. And so Abram goes and saves his nephew from captivity. And then towards the um, end of the story, we read about these kings who come to meet Abram. Uh, One is the king of Sodom, and the other is a king of a city called Salem. And the king of Sodom's appearance in this story makes sense because Abram had just defeated his military enemies. Um, And so he comes, the king of Sodom comes, and greets the man who basically rescued, saved his city. So it's easy to understand why the king of Sodom is in this story. But there's another king that comes to greet Abram. It's the king of Salem, and his presence really is more of a mystery because the passage doesn't explain why the king of Salem comes. Uh, It gives his name, Melchizedek, but this is Melchizedek's only appearance in the entire Abraham story. He isn't mentioned before Genesis 14. He's not mentioned after Genesis 14. In fact, those couple verses we just read is the entirety of what we know about Melchizedek in the entire Old Testament. Um, There's only one other verse that even mentions his name in the entire Old Testament. It's uh, Psalm 110, verse 4. But I just want us to take a moment. You can keep your Bibles open to Genesis 14. And I just want to look at this appearance of Melchizedek. And there are three things in this short little reference to him that we learn about him. One is that, we learn Melchizedek, he brought out bread and wine. It's a simple meal of sufficiency, nourishment after the battle, but it's also a sign of friendship. It's a sign of hospitality. It is Melchizedek's way of saying to Abram, I'm on your side. I'm in your corner. But secondly, Melchizedek He says, he says, he blesses Abram. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. It mentions that Melchizedek is a priest, a priest for the God most high, the same God as Abram, which in itself is kind of interesting because they're living in the land of Canaan. And Canaan has plenty of gods. There are all sorts of Canaanite gods. But Melchizedek isn't a priest of one of the Canaanite gods. He's a priest of the God Most High. 
which kind of leads into this whole idea and discussion of what's a priest anyway? What, what do priests do? What is their primary function? Now, um, I, like some of you, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and in the Catholic Church, there are priests. Here at TFRC, uh, Pastor John and I, we're not priests, we're pastors. And some of you may be thinking, well, what's the difference? There's a difference. And when I think of priests and um, prophets, or when I think of priests, I always try to remember their function in light of what does a prophet do. Because what a prophet does helps me remember and explain what a priest does. So what do prophets do? Prophets, who do they speak for? Prophets speak for... Someone whisper it to your neighbor, because I know you know it. Prophets speak for God. Tell your neighbor, the prophets speak for God. And the prophets speak for God to people, right? A prophet is basically a spokesperson for God. And who do they speak to? They speak to people. A priest is in one sense sort of the opposite of that. If a prophet speaks to us on God's behalf, a priest speaks to God on our behalf. Priest is sort of like our spokesman. If a prophet is God's spokesman to us, a priest is our spokesman to God. And a priest has a special relationship with God that enables him to go to God on our behalf. Now, sometimes, as a pastor, Pastor John and I, sometimes we get treated like priests. Um, my, my son uh, played baseball throughout high school, and every now and then, the coach didn't do this a lot, but every now and then, the coach would come up to me and ask me to pull some strings with the big guy. Okay? Son's baseball coach, you know, the, the weather wasn't looking too good. We had a doubleheader to play, and the coach would come up to me and say, hey, can you put in a word with the big guy and have this clear up? Or maybe the team wasn't doing very well, and he would say, like, hey, can you put in a word with the big guy? We need some runs. Actually, I would just take one run, okay? Anything, anything you can do would be great. And I just don't have that kind of pull, folks. I just don't. Look, if I had that kind of pull, the Packers would not be 2-2-1 two, two, right now. If I had that kind of pull, the Milwaukee Brewers would beat the Dodgers in this National League Championship Series. I'm just saying, I don't have that kind of pull. When Melchizedek says, blessed be Abram by God most high, what he's really saying is, God, bless Abram. You know, when we say to one another, God bless you, sometimes we say that, we're not really talking to you, each other, we're saying, God, bless them. That's what God bless you means. So, God, bless Abram. He is advocating for Abram to God, which is what priests do. They speak to God on our behalf. But in addition to being a priest, Melchizedek, he's a king. He's the king of a place called Salem. Now, just as an aside, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. But the city of Salem, if you look throughout Scripture, is simply another name for the city of Jerusalem. The city of Salem is the same city as the city of Jerusalem. 
How do we know this? If you were to look in Psalm 76, you would see in verse 2, it says, God's tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. Zion is what David names the city of Jerusalem after he conquers it. And God's tent, reference there, is the temple, which is also located in Jerusalem. And so if Salem is where God's tent is, if Salem is the city of Zion, it's Jerusalem. Now, this passage, Genesis 14, happens way, way, way before David in the temple, uh, a good thousand years before David in the temple. But Salem is the city of Jerusalem. And Melchizedek is the king of of that city. Again, Melchizedek's appearance in this story, it's kind of strange. It's a story of rescue, and then at the end of it, Melchizedek appears. It's his only appearance in the entire Abraham story. He isn't mentioned before. He isn't mentioned after. You never hear about him again in the entire book of Genesis. He's only mentioned one other time in the entire Old Testament, Psalm 110, verse 4. But he is talked about quite a bit in the New Testament book of Hebrews. He gets a lot of press in Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. In fact, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 15, it's talking about Jesus, and it says, And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the book of Hebrews sees Melchizedek as an echo of Jesus. Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. It says he is a priest on the basis of power of an indestructible life. And then it says... You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Would you like to guess what Old Testament passage that's quoting? It's the only other one that talks about him. Psalm 110, verse 4. It's the only other place in the Old Testament that mentions him, gets quoted there in Hebrews 7. Hebrews connects all of this to Jesus. Because like Melchizedek, Jesus is a king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And interestingly enough, there's a time in Jesus' life that he is mockingly called the king of the Jews. They call him that, not out of seriousness, but as a way to make fun of him as he's being crucified. And in what city is Jesus mockingly called the king of the Jews? Jerusalem, Melchizedek's city. And so Melchizedek is the king of Salem, and about 2,000 years after him, Jesus dies in Salem, Jerusalem. And there's this connection that is made in the Bible between Jesus' death and God making him the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Philippians chapter 2 says this about Jesus. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore God exalted him. Every knee shall bow, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because he humbled himself to die on the cross. And the irony of Jesus' death is that his death sealed his kingship in the city of Jerusalem, or Salem. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is also a priest. It says in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 7 of Hebrews. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. A priest, again, speaks to God on our behalf. And the passage says, he always lives to intercede for us. And to intercede means to intervene on someone else's behalf, on our behalf. Another word would be to advocate for us. And that is the part of the good news that I think we forget about all the time. Yes, we know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It's the greatest act of advocacy, of intercession of all time. But Jesus is always advocating for us. Jesus is always interceding for us. And right now, Jesus is advocating for you. Do you ever feel like the universe is working against you? where nothing turns out right, nothing is going your way, and you can't seem to catch a break? Now, I don't know why God allows such things like that to happen. I really don't. But it's not because God is against you. You've heard me say many times that God is for you, not against you. And you know why I say that? Because Jesus is in your corner. Look, Jesus died for you. Why would he die for you and then give up on you? That doesn't make any sense at all. So when it seems like the world is against you, that's when we need to remember the most that Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is saying to God right now, God bless Mike. God bless Shelley. God bless Chris. He is able to completely uh, save those who come to God through him because he always, because he always, because he always, because he always lives to intercede for us. I don't know what you're facing today, but Jesus is interceding and advocating for you right now. And like Melchizedek, Jesus gives us bread and wine. In Mark chapter 14, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For Abram, the bread and wine was meant to give him the strength 
to keep going after a battle. And for us, communion is meant to give us the strength to keep going, to keep living out our faith as we face the challenge of today, knowing that Jesus is in our corner, interceding for us. And receive God's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.